Lingard is joining in, and he's seen Martinelli! Extraordinary! Set it for Saliba! For Kyle Saka, beaten out by the roof, and touched in by Jesus! Kyle Saka! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bruise Banana FC podcast. My name is Justin. You can find me on Twitter at JFishAFC. Hope you all enjoyed the weekend and especially took the time to laugh at Tottenham Hotspur once again, proving that they are the laughing stock of the league. Even when Arsenal are going through a bit of a slump and you know morale around the fan base is down, I think we can all agree on one thing, that Tottenham are still shit, will always be shit, and will get battered everywhere they go. Today, we're going to preview our matchup tomorrow with Chelsea and the opportunity to continue Frank Lampard's honestly really impressive run of form as a manager, losing almost every single match. Chelsea haven't won in eight straight and are in complete disarray. And you know, despite having a plethora of attacking options, players like Jao Felix, Mikhailo Mudrik, they still... They're starting uh, Connor Gallagher as their, you know, pressing nine. I say that in air quotes because, you know, what the fuck, basically. It's an extremely defensive approach. It's kind of hilarious, and I hope it continues um, with me today to talk about Chelsea. Is Ben, who you can find on Twitter, at BenBrowning3. Hello, Ben. Hello. I mean... You can tell we're playing Chelsea that or either you've had like four coffees because you are far too excited for this one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how about a little bit of both? Uh, We'll just say that. (laughs) Um, And also with me today is Luke. You can find on Twitter at Ekelkun. Luke, how's it going? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. I've had a nice, uh, I think, kind of echo what Ben was saying before we started the pod of it's been nice to have kind of a weekend without having to think about an Arsenal game, which was kind of topped off by... In Gary Neville's words, the most Spurs thing ever of Richarlison giving it the big enough to match in Rapolding's league goal tally for the season just to lose the game 30 seconds later. <laughs> I mean, I think we, you know, this is obviously a Chelsea preview podcast, but I think, you know, we have to pay our respects to Spurs and you know, laugh as much as possible just a little bit because it's good for the soul. Luke, let's let, let's talk about uh, Spurs and what happened yesterday with them. Like you said, eat, coming back from being 3-0 down within the first 15 minutes to equalize only to you know, give up a late winner in, in I think the 97th minute or something like that. It, it really is just absolutely epitomizes what it means to be a Tottenham Hotspur player and fan. Yeah, and it is chaos. And you almost like, you almost feel a little bit from Lucas Moura because he's had the highs of sending his team to a Champions League final. And then in the kind of twilight of his first career, because from what been kind of reading that he's leaving into the season he's I think he got sent off in his last game and then given the ball to the guy that should have been sent off yesterday for him to score the goal 30 seconds after their player that scored the equaliser did a chicken dance so all being said and done <laughs> it doesn't look good I don't think no I I mean I think it's I think it looks great yeah <laughs> from an Arsenal perspective I could not have written the script any better um, but Ben, do you have anything to say on Spurs before we jump right into Chelsea? So, yeah, I mean, Spurs, uh, where, where would Spurs be without Harry Kane? It's the first question. I mean, I guess we're going to find out next season. But um, so Jamie O'Hara reckons they'd be Chelsea. I think that's really, really generous. 
because <laughs> I have not seen a worse 20 minutes in the Premier League than Eric Dyer put out against Liverpool. And I watched them the week before as well, and he wasn't much better. Um, <laughs> I was going to say. I, I, ge- genuinely, like, I don't understand. So you have Spurs fans leaving at 15 minutes. Imagine you're a Spurs fan, goes home and away. You've gone up to Newcastle, been beaten 6-1, five and a half to 20 minutes. The fact the players have come out and said, oh, it was shambolic, you know, we'll give you a refund. They've spent their 30 quid on the ticket for the Liverpool game, and they're 3-0 down after eight minutes. Like, it's just... It, it, that club is a mess from top to bottom, and well, I love it. But if um, imagine if it was us in that position, just I'd be tearing my hair out, and I don't have much hair left. So, I mean, I think it's important to, for perspective, to remember that no matter how bad Arsenal are, it could always be worse. We could be Tottenham Hotspur. We could be in this state of disarray that is unlike you know. I, we're going to talk about Chelsea here in a second. And yes, they're in disarray, but at least they have a, a history of winning to, to back it up. If you're a Spurs fan, you, there's no real end in sight in this golden era of uh, Harry Kane is coming to a close probably this summer with absolutely nothing but an Audi International Cup to show for it. So congratulations to Spurs. Uh, you remain the laughing stock of the league. So let's uh, switch gears to Chelsea here. And sometimes I think as fans, we we kind of think that the most difficult matches are when we're up against a team that's you know really running hot. And I think that's obviously true from an on-field perspective. We're gonna we're gonna see that when we play Newcastle uh, very shortly. They're obviously in a great run of form. But I think from you know an off-the-field or, or I guess how the players approach the match from a mentality standpoint that's kind of simple and straightforward you have to be at your best you're going up a team up against a team that's at their best you have to match that but when you're playing a team that's on a poor run of form it's sometimes harder to be you know completely focused because perfection isn't seemingly required Chelsea are a dumpster fire they haven't won in eight matches but Arsenal are also on a poor run of form and the pressure is still on Arsenal to turn it around and kind of remind the players the fans and, and the whole league that we are still the second best team in the league. Luke, you know, let's talk about kind of how, you know, the team should approach this from a mentality standpoint. And do you think there's any concern that you know, Arsenal do kind of have a history of going up against these teams that are, have lost 10 straight or, or haven't won in a long time. And then being that kind of get right side. Yeah. I'm curious about it, to be honest, because even though, We've generally had like obviously a fantastic season. Uh, we've had some poor results, and I think there is a pressure on us to to get back to winning ways, to get back in you know in the conversation of like of of being what we are, which has been the season one of the best teams in the league. But I'm always very skeptical at times when you play a team that's hit rock bottom because you know eventually they're going to come back up, and it, it very much kind of seems to me like one team is going to smell blood in the other team. And, you know, it's going to get to a point now where tomorrow, like either Chelsea are going to fancy their chances by saying we've been pretty bad recently, but, you know, Arsenal have had some pressure games recently that they haven't stood up in, or it could be the other way where Arsenal can look at this as a really good opportunity to get back to win ways and say, look, Chelsea, you know, didn't score like they scored one goal l- last month and it was a deflected long shot 
all the signs, all the statistics point to a Cruz and Arsenal win. But, you know, football isn't always that simple. And it will be down to the mentality we go into the game with and how we start the game with, because we've seen in recent Chelsea games, like the um, the Madrid game at Stamford Bridge, and even maybe the opening parts of the, the Chelsea-Brentford game, they lost 2-0. Like, they do have periods where they kind of string together something that could very closely resemble football. And if we let them score at that point and kind of let them get a bit of wind in their sails, then, you know, the arsenal that we've seen over the last three games, maybe, you know, it gets a bit complicated. So I think it's quite important that we go out with a good mentality, we play bravely and we do what we've done so much of the season and kind of blitz teams early, get those early goals and then keep up that tempo. I guess my only response to that is Chelsea clearly have nothing to play for. They're... I think if this game was, say, in February or January where there's 15 or 17 matches left in the season, then it's kind of, I think, a different scenario. But I think what we saw with playing against a team like Southampton where they are in a relegation fight, maybe Chelsea are in a relegation fight. Who knows how things could go? But, you know, there is the possibility, especially, I guess, if we score first, if we score in the first 15 minutes, I think then Chelsea will completely switch off and kind of, not care if it's 3-0, 4-0, it doesn't matter to them. And I think that there's a possibility that they won't come out with the same, I guess, enthusiasm and as we expect, because maybe, you know, all the players, they know they're playing for a lame duck manager. Why, you know, why half of them are probably going to be gone in the summer. They're, They're looking forward to the future and there's nothing to play for. Ben, where do you kind of fall on the, mentality and where I I guess from an Arsenal perspective, how to kind of overcome going up against a a squad that's in disarray like Chelsea. Yeah. um, As, as Luke says, when you get to rock bottom, there's not much left to play for. And if you've got Frank Lampard in charge, you're pretty close to rock bottom. Um, (laughs) But I I think there, it's a tricky one because Chelsea, as Luke says, everything goes goes in our favour. Chelsea got loads of injuries, you know, Mason Mount, Reese James, Kukurea, Havertz. Um, they haven't really got a decent midfield, despite having spent 150 million or whatever it was on Enzo Fernandez. You know, they're very much a project side with far too many pieces at the moment. But they do also have, you know, I'm a sucker for narratives, and they have Aubameyang, who Lampard's hinted might play a part, hopefully as much for a part as he did in the reverse fixture. And they also have Mudrick who might play. Um, they've got lots of players that can hurt teams, like, as you mentioned, Felix and Sterling and um, even Conor Gallagher. You know, he's he's a tenacious midfielder who's not afraid of getting stuck in, is how I politely describe him. Um, so I think that there are areas that, they, that we can be hurt, but also if if we don't take three points from this, then what's the point? Like if our season isn't already over, it will be if we don't take three points against Chelsea who are in free fall and you know, it's a London derby. We need to beat Chelsea. It's that simple. Like we have to take three points from this game and ideally put four or five past them, send them back with their tails between their legs and give us some confidence. Ben, let's talk a little bit about Conor Gallagher because, you know, I, I mentioned that he's been played as a pressing nine and, I don't think that necessarily is something that suits him, but Connor Gallagher as a pressing 10 when he was at Crystal Palace caused us a lot of problems and was really effective at neutralizing Thomas Party. Do you think that they may switch things up and kind of maybe go with 
like a two up front with a, a Kai Havertz and Connor Gallagher and use Gallagher in that similar way in kind of, you know, do, you th- do you think that that will have a similar effectiveness at kind of limiting our, our use of Thomas Party and build up and kind of being forced to rely more on Rob Holding, which we've seen over the past couple of weeks is kind of really does hinder us in, in our build up and kind of, if you take away Thomas Party, you kind of take away that entire right hand side. I think I think we might see a back three um, slash back five, predominantly back five. Um, I think we might genuinely see a Chelsea side come and set up in a five four one or a four five one because um, I think, as I said, Kai Havertz is injured. I think so. He's come. He's coming back for this. Is he coming back? Okay. Yep. Um, so yeah, I just I just think that. Chelsea will need to neutralise what we have rather than vice versa. And if we play as well as we can play, then even if Chelsea play as well as that 11, you know, ragtag team can put together, then we should beat them quite comfortably. It's just about keeping concentration. And I think Conor Gallagher was good for Palace, but I don't think that he has the system around him necessarily to make that work for Chelsea. And I think he has other areas where he's needed just as much for Chelsea. Um, he can't be quite as specialized, I don't think, as he was in that Patrick Vieira side. Luke, obviously Chelsea have kind of been all over the place under Frank Lampard. They've been you know, switching up their formation and tactics. Is there anything that you've seen under what Frank Lampard has done that kind of stands out from, obviously they've been pretty shit, but anything of note that I guess Arsenal, where, where the threat from Chelsea, I guess, would come from? It just screams a panic to me, to be honest, because, and it echoes a lot of uh, Lampard at Everton, where he takes over Everton, and at first they're quite expansive. He's trying to be like quite pressing, like he was in the first spell at Chelsea, and he kind of realizes these guys can't do this, and then he kind of goes straight from that to almost complete park the bus, and you almost kind of seen that just over a very short amount of time since he's gone back to Chelsea, where he's gone back to Chelsea and he's like, okay, let's pick up where I left off. Let's play some attacking football. And you saw like in his first few lineups, he was kind of getting wingers in the team. It was a bit more offensive. And then very, very quickly, um, uh, it's kind of gone the other way. And he spoke a lot um, uh, when he was criticised for his team sheet against Real Madrid in the second leg, like saying, you know, he wants the team to be structured. He'd spoke again about structure after the Brentford game. And as I said before, whilst they've had, and some okay periods of that. I don't think the threat is really there, to be honest, because like I'm not sure you look at that team right. And if you haven't got the likes of Reese James, who's injured now, um, who's their penetrating space? Because like as Pilicueta played right wing back against um, uh, against Brentford, and like it wasn't just that he was like no threat at one end; he scored at the other end. So you know, it's, it, I think we're at a point with Chelsea at this at, at the moment where. Um, it feels like damage limitation where they're almost going into games hoping not to get embarrassed. And I think if that's your intention to go into any football match, especially a team like Chelsea, which is like a big club that, as you said at the start, has history of winning things. Um, <laughs> it just kind of feels like uh, that their mentality is completely in the toilet. And I think that, you know, you have people like Lampards that come in who, you know, Admittedly, Benitez didn't have Everton in a good place before he took over, but essentially he took Everton to a relegation battle. He had a summer of recruitment where, you know, he brought in what well, on the service looked like some decent players and like Tarkowski and McNeil and whatnot, and then took them back into relegation battle and got sacked. So how that kind of mathematical equation adds up to good guy to stay the ship at Chelsea for the remainder of the season, 
I don't know. I'm not very good at maths, so you know, I, I leave um, that type of people. I was speaking to a couple of my Chelsea friends, and I made I made that point, and they basically said that the season's written off. What they actually want was a guy who will unite the fan base, and Frank Lampard is that because he's a club legend. That was their logic. Um, as I say I don't. He'll unite the fan base against Chelsea. That's really what's happening. Yeah, so, hey, fair enough. If, if you well, think I guess, I guess it's just apathy. Like... Yeah. yeah, but if it's the amount of money that it's, it cost them just to get rid of Potter, I mean, if your season's over, just stay with Potter because the obviously, like I, I can understand why they sacked him. Um, the results went there when your team like Chelsea, like football is a results game. If you lose that many games, you're going to get sacked. But it does feel like the performances under Lampard are worse than Potter. They're worse than and Potter. the results. Yeah, and the results worse than Potter. So I, it does I, feel I didn't like, understand it at all. Because they no. gave it to Bruno, who came out and basically said, "I don't want to do this job. Um, I've never done it before. We're going <laughs> to like have a round table to decide who starts. You know, drawing names out of a hat or whatever." Um, and then they decided to pick Frank Lampard on an interim basis, having been sacked by Everton, as you say. It's, it. I know that maybe they shouldn't necessarily have lined up a Potter successor whilst Potter was still in charge, but it did feel a lot like it was just a sort of scramble. Because they felt we could salvage our season against Real Madrid, I don't know. Maybe they gambled on like the new manager bounce of having Frank Lampard there, but it just, you know, it didn't work, and it hasn't worked, and it's sort of gone exactly how most people expected it to go. I mean, that is just a great, you know, microcosm of what Chelsea has been under Todd Bowley. Is each individual move maybe makes sense a little bit, but when you put it all together, it's just this you know, clusterfuck of signing all these players. It's, you know, the Modric deal, it, it, it makes sense. But when you add it to the Jao Felix deal, when you add it to you know, all of the other players that they've signed, it, it doesn't make sense anymore. And it turns into this, you know, yeah, like I said, a clusterfuck. And back to the, the manager, it totally made sense that Graham Potter was sacked. And I think, you know, most clubs would have sacked him in that situation. Most clubs probably would have sacked him three weeks five matches mm, previously yeah, because he was, he was so poor. And I think that's kind of where I, I don't think the club should get the benefit of the doubt for not having a plan because it was pretty obvious that, you know, they were saying, Oh, we back Graham Potter and stuff like that. But that's kind of, as we all know, the kiss of death. Anytime you have your, the same your time, they, they came out and signed, you know, 16 players in two transfer windows or something and didn't shift anything major in terms of like squad players and then you know hacking the edge at PSG and then Chelsea not replying to the facts because they're too busy trying to do an Enzo Fernandez deal. So you know the the club is a mess from top to bottom and I think Potter was as much a victim of that as he was, you know, maybe the way that he was trying to play didn't quite work. And he he had well he had poor spells at Brighton as well, you know. It's just that they were much less like the media was much less focused on them and Chelsea fans weren't obviously weren't paying attention to them, but he were, he was quite streaky at Brighton, but he is fundamentally a good tactician. And we didn't see that because he had to deal with about 40 players at Chelsea. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Uh, Luke, let's current, let's switch gears to Arsenal. Um, there's been some rumors that Thomas party has picked up a knock or he's been carrying an injury, I think. And, it was obviously that kind of would explain some of his performances and his dip of 
in, in form and especially obviously that third goal against Manchester City where it looked pretty obviously that he either didn't care or was injured. <laughs> if that is true, or, or I guess in any sense, and, and even if it's not, would you be uh, starting Jorginho to be able to, you know, going with that narrative to go up against his <laughs> former club and kind of remind them who he is and that they didn't need to sell a midfielder when they had no midfield in January. Yeah, to be fair, um, here's something that I was thinking about earlier, whether or not you put in Jorginho, like it depends on the threat you think Chelsea have to kind of, I guess, blitz physically. I feel like if they're going to play a similar eleven they've played in the last few games, then Jorginho maybe isn't the biggest risk unless you really feel like they're going to do what you said, you know, Gallagher did to party when he was at Palace, which is kind of sit Gallagher on Jorginho, stop him dictating. Um, but yeah, I think you could see it in the last few games, to be fair. party wasn't moving right, especially against Man City. just didn't feel like he was moving right. Obviously, we haven't got any like official confirmation on that. But if that was the case, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, I don't think that should absolve him of some of the mistakes he's made, just like obviously like the, 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 what led to the penalty for West Ham, where he kind of tries to showboat with Declan Rice signing him down and things like that. But in terms of how he isn't really able to cover space as well. Like that would completely make sense to me. So, and I do think that in games like this, games at home against a team like Chelsea, which we're going to have most of the ball and they're probably going to sit back and try and hit us on the counter. And then like the, the kind of the brain of Jorginho maybe does come into play quite a lot. So um, he'll probably be itching to to play against Chelsea and kind of prove that um, they were wrong to, as I think, as he said, kind of cut him out of their project. Um, and we, we see it sort of in the past as well. I think um, uh, a lot of times these players can come back and, and haunt their teams. Like it's happened to us numerous times. Uh, I just think that the big thing we've got to think about now is kind of how we set up in our shape. Like we we ended the Man City game in a double pivot. So is it going to be a case of like what Jack, like how is Xhaka at this point in time? Hard to really tell because obviously I don't think he trained much last week because of his illness. And then I don't think... He really looked at it against City, which is probably because of that. Um, uh, he was the one that came off instead of Party in that game. So are we going to be seeing like a double pivot of Party and Jorginho with like Odegaard playing ahead of them, a bit of a kind of a rethink in that sense? Um, it'll be interesting to see what Arteta goes with. But yeah, to be fair, if uh, if Jorginho starts on that day, I could see the logic in it. I also think that. Um we're better placed than we were. You know, we, we can talk about the Gallagher as the pressing turn and him doing a job on party, but I think Arsenal is so much more tax, tactically versatile now with, you know, especially with Zinchenko in. It makes it less of like a bottleneck, I guess, with Thomas Party. Like when we played Crystal Palace, we couldn't get out because Thomas Party couldn't get the ball up the pitch, but now we have players who can get the ball up the pitch much better. You know, Gabriel's come on leaps and bounds, Zinchenko's excellent there. We understand the system a lot better, so I think that that maybe will be less of an issue than it was, was it, 12 months ago? Yeah, really, this season, the only team that's been able to pin us back with their press was Manchester City in the last match, and Chelsea are very clearly not Manchester City from an an organizational or a a player quality standpoint, so (laughs) I I don't think we have that many concerns. Ben, we last... Uh, podcast we went in pretty hard on Rob Holding and I think the fan base is is pretty frustrated and, and kind of fed up with the having him I, I guess the lack of uh experimentation should we say um with some Rob Holding alternatives at center back do you think that you know since 
the title is over or whatever. Do you, th- yeah. Do, do you think that, uh, that maybe changes the way that Mikel Arteta goes into this match? Or do you think he's going to st- you know, still stick with Rob holding and kind of stick with this, the same 11 that went out against city? I would be shocked if he dropped Rob Holding. I said it ahead of City. It just seems like he has decided. Mikel Arteta seems to have some hills that he's willing to die on, and Rob Holding at right centre back appears to be one. You know, we haven't even flirted with changing the system since William Saliba was injured. We haven't, you know, Rob Holding's played every minute, I think. So I do think that we will keep him there. And, you know, if he, if he can't play against Chelsea, then there are serious problems because he's, he's a competent. Premier League defender. He's not an Arsenal Premier League defender, but you know he's all right. Um, and I think that he'll. I think he'll be there. I think it will be a largely unchanged eleven because if you, if you, as you say, Thomas Partey's got a knock, that takes that already takes up one of the alternatives um, to playing Rob Holding. So I, th- I do. Th- I do think he'll be there unless there's some miraculous recovery by somebody. I know Saliba's already out. Um, so yeah, I think that it'll be the same back four that started against City. And pro- I'd say probably 10 of the 11 will probably start. I think the Xhaka, Jorginho, Party, like two of those three will start. Um, it's just which two. Yeah, I guess to be fair to Rob Holding, he did pretty well against Crystal Palace and Crystal Palace are above Chelsea in the table. So, you know, there's precedent that just you know, pretty recently Rob <laughs> Holding can can do well against the bottom half. Uh, so, Luke, the last uh, player is... Uh, Leo Trossard. I thought that he was maybe one of the little bright spots in, in against Manchester City in nothing else than just his mentality in that he was not phased by by the moment. He was not phased by the opposition. He was not you where know, we saw a lot of our players kind of skirt away from the duels and the challenges and not wanting to play Manchester City. He, I thought he looked like he was, you know, in the moment, I guess, in, in wanting to play up to the moment. And I do think that his performances have deserved him to start. The question, I guess, is where do you, and firstly, do you think that he's going to come into the starting 11? And if so, do you think that will be as the number nine in, in place of Gabriel Jesus or out on the left in, in place of Gabriel Martinelli? It's, it's, it's always a tough one, isn't it? With, with Trossard, because as you say, like he came against City, he played really, really well. Fort Nelson came on, had a really good cameo as well. Admittedly, maybe not as hard to come on and play better than the players that started the game. And when the game had already been lost and City had already maybe gone down a few gears, not as hard to play against a City team that had already kind of won the game, essentially. So um, in that sense, you know, like when you're coming on in games that, are only going to go a certain way. It's a bit easier. So I do think that it's a different kind of thing to judge. But I think one thing maybe you take into account is that Martinelli has been subbed the last two games. Definitely coming against Southampton. I think he came off... Did he come off for Trossard against City? So it could be that um, Martinelli could do the break. Maybe that could get Trossard in. Like his appearances off the bench have definitely warranted that to be in the thinking if Martinelli's not kind of you know, at top conditioning. But other than that, I, I don't see it. It's, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because as good as he's been, you know, Martinelli and Saka are kind of dead certs in the team right now if they're fit and firing. And I'd say at this point in the time, they are fit and firing. If, if if they're fit to play, they probably do play. And I think that similar to what Ben was saying against Rob, uh, with Rob Holden, I think if Gabby Jesus is fit, Gabby Jesus starts. And to be fair, 
if he's going to get in over everyone on performance merit, then Jesus will probably be the one that has been a bit off colour in the last few games. But I think that, to be fair, like when you're coming off the injury love that Jesus has had, sometimes you do like kind of, you know, come in, in and out of form a bit. You're still trying to find yeah, your physical peak. You're trying to find your touch a bit more. Um, so I would imagine he doesn't start, to be honest, is probably the very boring end to your question. But um, if he did, then I'd imagine it'd be just, just to give Martinelli a break. But so we need to win the game. If- Sorry, if um, Trossard were to start instead of Jesus, do you think that would have a? Would that change your mind slightly on Enketia? Like, I feel like Enketia did really well for us, or did well enough for us during that time when Jesus was out, and has now been sort of back to where he was uh, eighteen months ago, I guess, where he was coming off the bench for like ten, fifteen minute cameos. Do you think that if then Trossard is chosen to lead the line instead of Jesus and over Enketia, that has a longer term implication on maybe him? I definitely think that and I, what I was going to say with Luke is when, yes, that uh, Trossard was subbed on for Gabriel Martinelli, but it was not a, you know, when he was subbed on, Gabriel Jesus went out to the wing and Trossard played through the center. And I think Trossard's best performances have been when he's been in number nine. I think that kind of what Gabriel Martinelli brings in terms of, you know, being out in the touchline, his one V one dribbling is not what Trossard brings. He, he's much more of that half space player in the future. You know, we could see him as that left eight, potentially if we're, you know, we've seen him do that when we're kind of against Southampton, we're going all in having to win, you know, putting on all the attackers Luke going back, or I guess Ben going back to your question. I, I think that it, it does not bode well for Nkedia if Trossard is kind of, now the number two nine in showing that he is versatile and can play pretty much across. He can play four or five different positions within the attack that Nkedia is a penalty box striker. He's a very, very good one, whether or not being that third choice, potentially third choice striker in the Arteta system is enough for him in his future. That That's to be determined. I think that it's pretty obvious that Mikel Arteta expects a lot from his number nine. He doesn't just want somebody who can score goals. I think that as soon as we, when Gabriel Jesus was out, I think as soon as we first put Trossard in as that number nine, we kind of never looked back. It was, you could see immediately that the entire team's performances improved significantly. Maybe Trossard wasn't immediately scoring the same goals as Enkedia, but the team was playing a lot better and it looked much more like the Arteta ball of when Gabriel Jesus was in. So I think that, yes, Inkedia is in an interesting position because he's been you know, very, very good for us. He saved us in, in plenty of matches. He just doesn't offer that little extra 10% that I think Trissard offers and Gabriel Jesus offers off the ball. And that kind of is, is pretty clear that that's what is required of the number nine. So yeah, just kind of not sure where... Where we go from a striking standpoint, and if it's one of those things, if we end up wanting to sell either Balogun or Inkedia or both, then that means that we need to then buy a left winger to be the backup to Gabriel Martinelli, or does that clear the spot for Emil Smith-Rowe again? There's there's kind of a lot of different pathways, and the future for Inkedia is kind of up in the air, similar to, I think, but to a lesser extent, what the future looks like for Smith-Rowe in terms of a lot of uncertainty and a lot of players that are kind of blocking their immediate path. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that's probably a good place for us to wrap things up. 
we will be back with a little bit of a, a discussion on the uh, Charlie Patino I guess, news that was announced today. And of course, we will be back after the match against Chelsea. Hope you guys enjoyed this quick preview of the Chelsea match. My name is Justin. You can find me on Twitter at JFishAFC. Thanks to Ben. You can find him on Twitter at BenBrowning3. And Luke, you can find on Twitter at Echelkoon. We'll catch you guys later. Odegaard is joining in. And he's seen Martinelli! Extraordinary! Set it for Saliba! For Kyle Saka, beaten out by the race. Untouched in by Jesus! Kyle Saka! Yes! Oh,